Blog Talk Radio. Join us, joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We have a bit of a glitch this morning. I'm Heather Stark, your host, and our guest is scheduled to call in but hasn't done so yet. So I will uh, just try and wing it on my own. Uh, Rob Oaken, O-K-U-N, is to be our guest, and uh, he wrote a book called Voice Male, M-A-L-E, The Untold Story of the Pro-Feminist Men's Movement. What's interesting, I think, about this book is that it's so comprehensive, and I have to say, I was a little, um, although I'm I'm very um, pleased with the book, I mean, overall, but it was uh, kind of uh, strange to me that one of the entries was by Robert Gardner, and um, we'll talk a little bit about him in a minute, but um, Rob Oaken is the uh, gentleman who has edited Voice Mail magazine for the last 20 years. And what this is is a very informative magazine directed toward uh, men who are active in the um, pro-feminist movement. So what they do are they are, are men who are interested in uh, what they call gender equality, and they have put their mouths where their money is. No, they put their money where their mouths are. I, something they're standing behind their feelings and uh, they have been very very active and one of the things that i like about this book is that it is sectioned off into different uh, areas of, of expertise and each of these areas has contributing essays Okay, so basically what it is is a conglomeration or a collection of essays talking about these different topics about men's life. So the first section is called Boys to Men, and it talks about growing up male and um, what we can do in uh, helping boys turn into men that are men that we would like to see in the world, men who are supportive of women, men who uh, believe in equality, men who can raise their children and um, uh, be aware that there is an issue that they need to teach their children, and that is respect and um, gender equality, for lack of a better word. Um, I would love it if somebody could call in here. The number is 646 378 and uh, give me a hand here. Help me, uh, help me do this show. So again, it's six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. Rob, if you're out there listening, it's not too late to call in any time your phone starts to work. So um, let's just briefly go over these section sections in this book because they're very comprehensive. As I said, first section is a short history of what he calls one of the most important social justice movements you've never heard of. And that, of course, is the men's pro-feminist movement. Um, what he says in this, this foreword, in, the, in this uh, uh, history, is that um, basically after he came out of college, he was a newspaper reporter, and he started wondering uh, about you know, the things he was reporting on about women and the women's movement. And um, it is 
uh, interesting to read his evolution, if you will. I'm going to read you uh, a couple of uh, um, excerpts from this book. And, uh, for example, he says in his foreword, in a sense, this book chronicles the movement just as against the tide pro-feminist men in the United States, 1776 to 1990, documented the history of men who had supported gender equality since the founding of the country. Voice Mail, the publication, and again it's M-A-L-E, chronicles the contemporary pro-feminist men's movement, providing a documentary record of activism, engagement, and personal reflection. And I think that's exactly what this book is all about. If you recall the uh, first wave, or what we call the first wave of feminism, the the suffragettes, there were several of those very prominent suffragettes who said, you know, basically we're not going to make any headway as women uh, unless men are there as well. And I think that that's very true. So in this book, there are collections of essays. One is Boys to Men and uh, The Healthy journal, uh, Journey to Manhood and uh, Searching for New Boyhood. And that's by an author named Michael Kimmel, who is really a fascinating and prolific author in this field. And uh, one of the things that is kind of interesting to me is a chapter called Getting Out of the Man Box. Now, that's by Doug Jin or Gin, G-I-N-N, whom I'm not familiar with, but I think after reading this, I would like to be. Um, he has some really interesting things to say about that man box. And what he defines the man box as is basically the expectations that men have. Um, you know, the, the whole act like a man. Well, what is what, what's a man act like? I know my father was a very uh, rough and tumble man. He worked as an, an iron in the iron industry and steel, and uh, he worked in uh, service stations repairing cars. He was always, uh, gosh, I don't think there was a single thing in our house that didn't uh, have his signature on it, his stamp on it, as having repaired it or made it or or um, finished it. So, you know, he was a very manly man, but he also grew up in a household with all sisters. Uh, I think he had five sisters, all told. And so I always said he's the first feminist man I ever met. As a matter of fact, he's the first feminist I ever met. He was very interested in women's um, rights and women's um, equality. And some of the things that he did, as I said, he, he was... You know, he fit the stereotype of the 1960s man uh, out there being rough and, and uh, you know, taking charge of things. And, you know, but he was also very kind and very sensitive. And having had uh, a wife and two daughters and all those sisters, he was also very attuned to women and the role of women in, in our culture. And he was definitely... Um, pro-feminism. I don't think he would have said that. I don't think he even knew what that would mean. But he was definitely pro-feminism in that he felt that his uh, children and women in general had a a right to some sort of self-determination, that they shouldn't be boxed in. If you wanted to be something, you should be able to be that. And um, again, he was my first exposure to men who are interested in uh, promoting women. He didn't belong to any organizations or anything, but um, he definitely established uh, something for me, a a pattern in my life. Um, Let me just read this from uh, Doug Jin, Getting Out of the Man Box. 
Last year, a female co-facilitator and I were leading a discussion on gender roles with a group of white, lower-to-middle-class, high school-age boys. Our first activity was to brainstorm what it means to act like a man. On a sheet of paper, we wrote their suggestions inside a square box, which we said represented the traditional view of masculinity. Around the box, we wrote the consequences a man might face if he tried to step out of the box of conformity. The result? Name-calling, threats, and violence. These kids knew what was up. They were becoming men in the same culture that produced me. Misogyny, homophobia, and even violence were a part of life, and this state of affairs seemed natural to them. So this is the, the man box that he's referring to, that expected uh, behavior, beliefs, that expected role uh, that a man has in our culture. And that expected role is what most young men model their behavior and their socialization upon. For the rest of the session, we discussed the ways gender roles are reinforced. I kept emphasizing the box as a visual metaphor to show how dominant white masculinity is confining and rigid, besides being dangerous and destructive. Through the exercise, I hoped these teenage boys might get a glimpse of what it was like to transgress their gender to see the possibilities doing so opens. After a while, one of the older boys said something that shook the ground beneath my soapbox and made the square visual metaphor on the newsprint behind me seem irrelevant. I don't know, he said. I kind of like being inside the box. I love that because I think in a lot of times in discussions, um, we forget that um, you know men might be comfortable. They, they certainly um, are given some leeway in their behaviors, uh, told that, well, this is just the way boys are. And I'll tell you, as the mother of a boy, I, I do believe that some of that is true. I think that there are definitely characteristics that men have in young boys that no matter how much you um, try to teach them differently, they just have. And some of them are not so bad. But I can understand um, that this box that uh, the instructor was trying to show them um, also held some things that felt pretty good for these guys. Um, And uh, to go on, he said, um, to act like a man meant you often had to seek out danger to prove yourself, but the danger could be fun. You had to disrespect girls and gays with your friends, but that's how you got to be a part of their clique. Most important, acting like a man gave you power and privileges in the society that were withheld from most other groups of people. Despite despite the fact that being a man meant dominating others and never showing vulnerability, the big payoff for this teenage boy, anyway, was still worth it. And as it turned out for the group, he wasn't alone in feeling that way. So in other words, you know, this box can be pretty constricting, but it also offers some privileges that some um, men, some young men especially, are uh, fine with. You know, they're, they're willing to accept, you know, danger because it can be kind of fun. They're willing to accept, you know, um, uh, bashing others because it made them feel part of a, an in-group. So I can see this and I can see what he means, but the question that I have is, okay, so is there a need to really get these boys out of the, that box? I would say, yeah, but that's me. If there is a need, how do we get them out of that box? Because there's still a lot of reward for being in that box. Let me give you the phone number again, 646-378-0430. 
And again, we're talking about the book Voicemail, M-A-L-E, The Untold Story of the Pro-Feminist Movement, Men's Movement, Pro-Feminist Men's Movement. To go on with this story, the author uh, talks about how he'd been in the same place as this boy, uncertain about the world but grasping for some way of explaining it. In those years, I've gone through many transformations. I still am, and it's an ongoing process. Yet somewhere along the line, I forgot what it was like to be numb to the pain of others. This boy's comment triggered memories of being a desensitized teenager, struggling to feel in a desensitizing culture. My parents did as much as they could to teach me about the world and the importance of caring for other people. They tried to explain why violence was not the answer, that there was never an excuse for violence against women, that you should always respect those with different lifestyles and opinions. I am the man I am today because of them. But the hardest part of the journey had to be walked alone. There wasn't much my parents could do for me between junior high and high school. I didn't want to be shielded anymore. I wanted to stand on my own two feet, and that meant walking face first into the oncoming wave of adolescence. The media landscape through which I wandered was relatively the same as the one this current group of teenage boys was experiencing. It's a world where society is corrupt and everybody screws everybody, so you might as well get yours while you can. The only thing that really matters is being hyper-cool. Any sort of brutality can be made acceptable if it's sexy enough. The world isn't much different from the one that most adults inhabit every day, but adults have other things to occupy their minds, paying bills, raising kids, trying to be good role models. For young people, this corrupt world is our whole world. We don't immediately accept it, of course. We want to believe that there is good in the world, but the positive role models get fewer and fewer the further we get from the world of our parents. At first, polite society filled me with rage because it stunk of falseness, but the only outlet for this rage was mediated and medicated through TV, music, and movies. The violence had to be extreme, the sex ultra-raunchy, and the music aggressive and loud. The more cracks that appeared in society's civilized facade, the more jaded I made myself. Eventually, it became a source of pride. Anyone who still cared about saving the world was naive and open to ridicule. Now I can see that this whole process happening at an even earlier age as I watch young people growing up. So media contributes to this man box that the author is talking about. Media shows us and kind of feeds into those um, um, immature and um, um, simplistic views that people have about men and how it means to be a man. The flip side to this depressing tale is that I eventually retired of being unable to feel any real emotions. The power and privilege that came from staying inside the box felt hollow. I wanted to try being something other than ultra-jaded and hyper-cool. When I got to college, studying history, theory, and politics stirred up the embers in my stomach, and as passion returned to my heart, I found a healthy outlet working with organizations dedicated to social change, not on a fly-by-night basis, but as a long-term project spanning, I hope, the rest of my life. Too few young adults get the chance to explore the opportunities college offers, and many young men who do get to college have already grown too accustomed to the box of masculinity to be able to give it up. To seriously challenge sexism instead of just preaching, we need to acknowledge how difficult it is for young boys to adopt any other persona but the traditional dominant masculine one. 
There have to be outlets for young boys to channel their anger into healthier forms of expression, and we need to mitigate that anger by honestly engaging them from a very early age. Most important, men, and especially young men, need to set the example of masculinity that is lived outside the box. So that's, I think, one of the whole premises of this book is to um, challenge the traditional roles that uh, men have been raised with and that men have, you know, in many ways gotten used to in our culture. So we have uh, that particular essay which really spoke to me because that's kind of the the foundation of what uh, voice male kind of stands for. Um, Just to uh, review some of the other things that are in this index, in the boys to men section, they have um, uh, essays on uh, Wanted, Young White Guy to Change the World, Living the Team, Becoming a Man, Coaching Our Kids, Boyhood Without Weapons, Rite of Passage, Believing in Young Men, and Men's Tears. That's kind of an interesting one, Men's Tears, because... I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little long in the tooth, and I remember when I was young on TV or even in real life, you didn't see men crying. The first time I saw a man cry was my dad at my sister's wedding, and I was like, wow, you know, he's really crying. You know, he's really got these tears rolling down, and it really impacted me a lot. I mean, it just really let me know that um, my dad was really human and that he really cared a lot for us. But then, um, you know, that was something that I didn't see for a a long, long time after that. Currently, in the last few years, I'm starting to see more and more um, men crying on TV. Politicians, um, lots of tears from politicians in the last few years. Um, People, men who are uh, just interested in uh, particular issues, men who, um, you know, are, are showing some emotion since I'm not a man, one of my questions is, is is that genuine or is that just kind of a trend? I don't know. Um, I really don't know. I hope it's genuine. Um, And if it is, does that make anybody uncomfortable? That, you know, this this man box idea that, uh, you know, they're stoic and a man doesn't show his emotion, does it make anybody uncomfortable when a man does show his emotion? When a man does cry? Uh, in, in public. Sometimes when I see the politicians do it, I think, well, this is just a ploy to make them seem more human and caring. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I I raised a son and I had a father, and that's about as much as I really know about men in our, our culture, other than what I've read. There's a po- poem in here by Freya Manfre- Manfred. Uh, Of course, that's a woman. Man's Tears, and it was written in 2006. Every day since school began, our 10-year-old bursts into tears. My bike is scratched. My cat is hurt. He pushes away our hugs and weeps, standing, sitting, lying in the leaves. The great head with zinnia-petaled hair bowed over and the chest heaving. Hopeless, helpless, wave after wave, he weeps until he's done. It's hard for us to listen, but we say to each other, why shouldn't a boy cry? Please, God, why shouldn't a man? Why shouldn't all the men in the world lie down and cry, feet dangling, knuckles rubbing their wet faces? Let them stop working, stop traveling, stop talking, and sit in the daylight, in the dark, in the woods, in the cities, in the deserts, and cry. 
sobs filling the sky, inhalations flooding their lungs with other men's exhalations, connecting them together, their bodies becoming one with rivers, lakes, and seas. While we sisters, mothers and grandmothers, crouch down behind them, uh, praying, our bodies feeling their pain, as we do when our small sons cry, sweet and strong, these men and nations bold enough to weep men's tears. So what she's saying, I guess, is that, you know, it takes a strong man to be able to show his emotions. And I think, to a large extent, that's true. So, um, you know, we, we've, we have to look at that whole basis of showing emotion and feeling emotion and recognizing the emotion you're feeling as one of the basic things that it takes um, to help a man grow up, to help a man be a man. Other things in the table of contents here are charging, changing men. And I think we've kind of been talking about that for the last 20 minutes is, you know, men are changing. We've we've seen it. Um, we've seen, as I said, the tears on TV. That's just one example of how we've seen men change. We've also seen a lot of things, pictures in the media of men with newborns, with infants, with their children. Um, and that indicates, I think, a more active role in child-rearing and in caring for children. The book also addresses race, color lines, a new future for black masculinity, um, Barack Obama and the mythology of black men, black men aids and community, healing rights for fathers and sons, tears of a black father, an immigrant speaks out after September 11th, and a good white man. Fathering is a big chapter in this in this book too. Um, apple pie, love of country, and fatherhood. Men in baby showers, um, that's a trend we've seen uh, in the last few years as well. Men either attending uh, baby showers or having their own baby showers. Uh, talks about um, raising boys as an adoptive father, uh, teen fathers, uh, adult life, men's rights or what's right for men, uh, father hunger, hoop dreams, choreo- choreographing the father-son dance, remembering the loneliness of fatherhood, Fathering your father, and that's something most of us um, most of us experience is becoming uh, caretakers or uh, responsible parties for our own parents. When fathers mother, and that's an interesting one to me because in the household that I grew up in, my father was definitely the nurturer. He was definitely the mother. My mother um, had um, some problems, and she was not particularly nurturing. She did not really have that that whole mother hormone stuff going on. But my father did, and my father was the one I'd go to if I scuffed my knee, or my father was the one that I'd go to if I had a big problem. And he definitely was the mother in my household. Um, between him and my sister, I kind of grew up thinking of both of them as, as the nurturers. Um, my children, after the funeral, well, well, you know, we've got to face that, that our parents are going to pass on. And what does that mean for a man? You know, assuming that a, a young man's best role model is his father, what happens to men when they lose their fathers? I know it happens to some women when they lose their fathers. I know it happened to me. But is it different for men? What What... You know, I know sometimes there's a lot of conflict between sons and fathers. So, I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm, I haven't read that particular essay yet, so I'm kind of interested in doing that. Male survivors. 
Again, this is survivors of abuse, um, and there's several um, essays on that that are very, uh, very provocative, I think. Uh, one of them is outing yourself as a survivor. A lot of men are reluctant, a lot of people, I shouldn't say just men, are reluctant to identify as having been abused sexually or any other way as a child. And is it important that you out yourself? Another section, Men and Feminism, Feminism for Men in 1914. Now that's an enjoyable essay for me. Uh, An open letter to gentle men. No more Mr. Good Guy. Pop culture and pornography. Huge issue, I think, when we talk about men is pornography. Um, Canadian Feminists' Uneasy Alliance with Men Challenging Violence. Desire, a feminist response to desire. What do, why do, what do women have to do with men's healing? Okay. A Guy's Guide to Becoming a Pro-Feminist. And reports of the demise of feminism are premature. And I think that that's an enjoyable one as well. Again, what's covered in this book, men's health, healthy men, overcoming depression, living with suicide, don't know what I'm feeling, healing emotionally after cancer, unmanly conditions, living and loving with erectile dysfunction. Uh, We hear a lot about that um, in uh, popular media with all the new medications. Overcoming violence, and I think sometimes when we talk about men uh, in our culture, we tie it in with violence, either as a, a negative thing or as, as a somewhat positive thing. Um, and there's, of course, a wonderful book by Jackson Katz called The Macho Paradox, and if you have any interest in this area, it's really very good and explains you know, the paradox that men do have. And again, I didn't have a lot of sympathy for this until I raised a son. And then I saw the expectations that society puts on our boys. They're supposed to be this way, but they're supposed to be that way. They're supposed to be this way, but they're supposed to be that way. I mean, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on um, boys in our society. doesn't surprise me uh, that there's some confusion. Then there's um, uh, gay, les- uh, gay uh, bisexual, transgender uh, voices. What is healthy masculinity? Um, humanity beyond boxes, healthy max- masculinity is a collective journey. And the final chapter is a farewell to arms, manhood after Newtown, or Newton, I guess it's pronounced, um, why white men keep mum about the white madness of mass shootings. Letter to Adam Lanza. The unbearable whiteness of suicide by mass murder. Interesting point, if you've ever uh, thought about that. Message to the media. It's about manhood more than guns and mental illness. And that particular essay is by Jackson Katz. Again, a, a wonderful, wonderful author. I'm going to take go to the phones right now. Hello, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, and we have a comment. Can you help me out here with this discussion? <laughs> you bet. Uh, my name is Louise, and I live in Kirkland, and I grew up on the east side, and I just wanted to speak to the single dads in the media concept that you brought up a little while ago and how okay, much I you, enjoy, I totally enjoy the new commercials with the single dads portrayed. And they don't lose an ounce of their masculinity, they are no, awesome. some of those some of those yeah. ads are quite the guys are quite sexy, really. 
Yeah. And the one in particular I'm thinking of is the girl who's a cheerleader and her dad is doing the cheer with her and it's hilarious. He's really getting into it and yet it's portraying him as a wonderful, nurturing dad. I think that's so cool. Yeah. Was your dad a nurturer, Louise? <laughs> yes, he was. He was the more playful one of the two and I think that's part of why I love these commercials, the other ones where they're, the man is playing princess with his two girls or something. And my dad would do that, and he even did that as a grandparent, um, having tea with my daughter and things. And he would he would act like a girl in a funny way, and yet she just adored him as her grandpa. So I love seeing the more involved image of the men. And gentleness. I mean, as long as this is our topic, just the gentleness, and yet they retain their masculinity. I love it. Well, I think that gentleness, too, but there's an inner strength. I think, for me, true masculinity is, you know you're strong. You're strong enough to face anything you need to face. You don't have to uh, be strutting around and projecting that um, strength. You can mm-hmm. take the time to be gentle. You can go ahead and, and allow that part of you come through because you know you're strong. You don't have to prove it to anybody. And any woman will tell you that that's sexy. And if oh, a yeah. man wants to attract a woman, boy, if if he's a nurturer and a strong, confident um, guy, that's, that's mm-hmm. better than some wife-beater T-shirt and... <laughs> Ultra macho, yeah, yeah and, and bragging about your accomplishments and, and right. strength. I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I really do. And you, do you have a son? I do. He's okay. Adult so as when well. you were raising your son, did any of these issues come to you um, about you know how to raise a son who isn't one of those uh, wife beater T-shirts, bragging all the time kind of guys? Yeah, he's a gentle soul as well, and I made sure, since I was a single mom, that a lot of the parents of his friends were involved. And one fun thing I did for his 16th birthday, because I was concerned here he's getting more into manhood, I asked 16 men that had been in his life to write a letter of of advice to him, and I collected (gasps) them. What a great idea! Yeah, and I collected them and gave it to him in a package for his birthday. And they wrote, I thought that they would just write, you know, shallow, you can do it kind of stuff. A lot Uh of them wrote long, loving, fatherly uh, advice to help him become a good man. And I so appreciated that. Oh, what a great idea. I love that idea. I also was a single mom, and, uh, you know, you do struggle, especially with me. I mean, I, my, like I said, my dad was really the first feminist, and I think it wasn't until I actually um, started working professionally that I realized, wait a minute, a lot of men have, they're mm. different. <laughs> mm-hmm. they're, they're not as supportive. They're not as concerned. They're not as t- keyed in to women, and it was really kind of a shock to me. Um, mm-hmm. Because I was, uh, as I said, I had a very feminist female household. Even the the dog and the cat were female, and uh, it was really a shock to me that 
all these guys that I encountered were not like my dad, um, yeah. who was also, as you as you say, a gentle soul, very gentle, and uh, but also exuding that strength. Um, exactly, and, and my dad was always very encouraging as far as um, career. I mean, this was in the 60s that I was growing up, and he was pretty progressive, I'd say. And he would say, you know, in the morning, he'd say, well, have fun being awesome today. And Oh, how cool. Yeah, and appearances were not a big deal in our house so that the quality of the person was greater than the look of the person. So when I got into the business world, I was shocked at the number of men that would hit on you or expect you to wear, you know, if you wore a shorter skirt, maybe we'd get this account, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, come on, forget that stuff. Let's go with, you know, substance here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's another point uh, that uh, actually isn't really mentioned in this book, in the table of contents that I read, and that is uh, men and women's sexuality. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna, next time I talk with Rob, I'm going to have to mention that, um, how men react to women's sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of men don't know how to re, uh, to relate or, or um, interrelate with women. Um, right. They think that that's all they the do is they, they have that big... Have. Yeah, yeah, they have that big, you know, sexuality neon sign over their heads. And, (laughs) so when they see, you know, when they turn and look at a woman, what they see is that big neon sign saying sex, sex, sex. Um, But, you know, I mean, there has, there, clearly there are other ways, you know, to, to view women. And, uh, I'll have to ask Rob about that. I'm so disappointed. I don't know what's, what's happened to him. Um, he uh, is on Eastern Standard Time, so I'm hoping it wasn't an issue of timing, uh, that had him, uh, not calling in today. Um, but anyway, the, the, uh, essays here are, are very, um, special, I think. They opened my eyes. Getting back to the idea of being a mom, um, when I, first had a son, I thought, okay, this child is going to grow up with no toy guns. We don't want the toy guns. We want to discourage aggression. We want to really, you know. But, you know, even without giving him guns, he uses Legos to make guns. You know, he took mm-hmm. pieces of paper and tore them into the shapes of guns. Um, I remember when he was in the third grade and, and the boys were drawing pictures, you know, little stick figures, and, and they were in shootouts and they had little red blood around there. And the teacher was appalled, and so she took away all the boys' red markers. Well, it took them about five minutes to figure out that aliens have green blood, so then they'd start drawing the aliens with the, the green blood, you know. And, and it was hard for me because it was like, wait a minute, we're telling them they, they, if they feel aggression, they can't act on it. You can't act that out. So what we've got here is presumably an acceptable way to express any aggression that you feel, which is... Draw, put it on paper. You know that's what we tell people to do, and yet here they were putting that on paper, and the teacher was saying, "No, no, can't do that either." So it's like, well, what are they supposed to do with feelings of aggression that they have? Um, and that was a, a big wake up for me too, that I was first of all feeling that way, and secondly of all that I had an empathy for these, you know, these these kids, these boys. 
because uh, I really did grow up with all females, you know, <laughs> and and I had lots of empathy with what women go through. But uh, you know, having my son, um, there was a reason that I had that boy, and that is to teach me. <laughs> did you experience any of that as a, as a single mother, Louise? Did you did you have to fight the you know I'm I'm not my son is not going to be aggressive. No, I was more of an observer of my children before I I uh, had any s- strong standing. In other words, I looked for their behavior and then tried to mo- uh, mold it. And my son, he was big into Nerf, and so they would be shooting the hell out of each other and mm-hmm. total rampage and everything. But I thought it was okay because it was a gentle thing, and he never really exhibited it in his playtime otherwise. So I would mm-hmm. think I was lucky with that and didn't have to... Yeah, I wasn't shocked at all. Just maybe I'm thankful to the Nerf company <laughs> for yeah. helping with that. Yeah, yes, those were it. those were those were good. <laughs> As a matter yeah. of fact, now that my kids are are grown up, every now and then uh, they all get together and and one of them brings one yeah. of those Nerf things. They, you know, I mean, even as grown ups, it, it astounds me. Um, yeah. But. Um, you know, it was uh, the the whole idea of you know not being aggressive in action, um, but being able to pretend aggression. I mean, when I was a kid, everybody played cowboys and Indians. Well, of course, you can't do that now, but there was that aggression, and everybody knew that it was toys. It was pretend, um, and and it didn't really seem to harm anybody. Um, That's right. And my neighborhood but, you know, really looked at women as equals. Even as kids, we. Uh, the boys, for the most part, respected the girls and interacted with the girls, didn't use the girls or were condescending to the girls, not at all. And I I really appreciate that as well because I see that other neighborhoods, the the guys just from the get-go, from an insecure parent or something, learn that the girls are less than and treat them so even as kids. And that's sad. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And I think going back to that whole father thing, that's the message I got from my father. You know, what you said about girls are less than. I got the message from my father that I wasn't less than anyone. Yeah. Um, And and that was probably the best message anybody could have given me growing up. Uh, I feel very grateful uh, to have had the father that I had. Um, And so women who didn't get that... What a struggle it must be to have the confidence, the self-confidence to believe that they are equal. But mm-hmm. you look on TV, there's a lot of attorneys, women attorneys, commentators, you know, weather people, all kinds of news outlets. You know, women are fully engaged, and I wonder how some of the more um, discriminatory men think about that now. Because we've definitely proved the pudding. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, and I don't. I think one of the differences is uh, that men don't talk about it to everybody. When I was a uh-huh. kid, you know, a man could just talk about it in, in, in society and in groups and, and talk about you know uh, women's inferior, supposed inferiority. Now you can't do that. Uh, but I wonder if. There are still those feelings in some men, but they just kind of get buried. I don't yes. know. I know my daughter is hit on 
to this day at, at work. And so I relate to her the stories I experienced when I was younger. Hers are a little less uh, obtuse. I mean, they're more subtle, and she handles it really well, but it's still out there. Um, and I even made the same assumptions, too. I mean, this doesn't have anything to do with um, uh, violence or anything, but I met a woman who said she was in OB, uh, you know, obstetrics. And I said, oh, are you a nurse? And she was the OBGYN doctor. And my Ooh. assumptions were even incorrect. And I felt terrible because I don't think that way. I I know women can be good OBGYNs and such. Yeah. So the conditioning is going to take a while to get removed from society. I'm assuming it will be removed. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think that anybody who's, like, maybe over 40, um, gosh, you know, we we grew up with um, with those assumptions. So, you know, they're kind of embedded in us, even if we mm-hmm. don't agree with them. Um, you know, I, 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 and hopefully there's some change because, as you mentioned, there, we're seeing people, uh, women on TV and in roles that we never saw them in 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, hopefully some of those uh, uh, very basic assumptions that I grew up with anyway, um, hope, hopefully they're, they're going to um, dissipate as time goes on and people forget we ever even had those. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know it it's but I find it a fascinating um topic um and when I started looking at this book and I've actually spoken several times with, with Rob Oaken and um gosh he's you know um very knowledgeable very uh, grounded very um you know a, a a very um manly man if you will um and he's dedicated his life to this Mm, um, and you know what a great role model. I don't know if he has children or not, but what a great model for young men to see him, who's made his whole uh, career um, helping men and uh, helping with this whole gender equality issue. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm flipping through this book, and, and there's this whole section on pornography, which kind of ties in with what you were saying about that whole, you know, the neon sign over the head of any woman that says sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think, what do you think pornography has to do with the way we view women today? Oh, I just read something how to define pornography or or um, something that's disrespectful to women. And some of the comments, I won't be able to remember them all, but if they only, if in a picture they only show, show a portion of a woman, like an object, as if they were just oh. a pair of legs or just a pretty face or, you know, the silhouette or something like that, or if they are doing something as an object, the act is impressing you as a as they are just an ob- object, not a person. Um, and I thought that was perfect because when I've had experiences of men coming on to me, I felt like their object. I wasn't a person; they were just, you know, seeing female. Ooh, let's go for it. 
so I appreciate that, and I think it has a huge impact, huge impact on how men treat women and especially, first of all, think of women. And Yeah. Yeah, women of substance. I are, saw are, uh, a thing not too long ago that was kind of interesting where the, I can't remember the name of the group, but what they did is they took a bunch of ads, advertisements that featured the sexy women, you know, sexy women selling spark plugs, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, they recreated the ad but used a man instead. Mm-hmm. So if the there was, poses? Yep, same poses. The, the, the <laughs> particular one that I saw was a, a woman in a bathtub, you know, obviously, you know, nude, but she was covered up with uh, rose petals, you know, so that you just saw, you know, you didn't see anything you weren't supposed mm-hmm. to see, but, you know, clearly she's in a bathtub, and uh, covered with rose petals, and she has this ecstatic look on her face while she's selling whatever product it happens to be. And side by side, they put one with a naked man in the bathtub, covered with the rose petals, you know, <laughs> holding the product with this ecstatic look on his face. And it was really, I mean, it's kind of shocking when you see mm-hmm. that. It's kind of like, Whoa! You know, yeah. I <laughs> this, saw the same. This looks ridiculous. A man was yeah. washing a car and standing in the poses, seductive poses of women. They look ridiculous. Yeah. And why well, is that you know, okay there is a, with woman? There's a um, um, motorcycle, pretty expensive European motorcycle called a Ducati, and mm-hmm. they started a new ad campaign. This was about six months ago or so. They started a new ad campaign, and so uh, the guys from the Ducati you know, manufacturing plant were there watching the shooting and everything, and they had, of course, the semi-nude, you know, sexy lady draping over the Ducati, you know, and, and uh, they went through all those standard poses for the photographer, and then the men decided it would be fun to do the same thing. <laughs> so they stripped down to their underwear, and they... <laughs> You know, and these were just regular men. These weren't models. I mean, these were guys with the little beer guts and, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and they stripped down. And so, you know, these ordinary men are draped over the Ducati looking, you know, all sexy, you know, the sex- sexy expression and the pouty lips. And they did the whole ad campaign with just guys who had been watching the campaign. Mm-hmm. Absolutely <laughs> hysterical. Absolutely Maybe hysterical. Maybe they're figuring and- out the new sexy for men is to be... Uh, more engaged in child rearing and humor and down to earth, mm-hmm. and that yeah. is a good sign to me. I think so too. So, um, what about pro feminism uh, as a men's movement? Have you had any experience with men in your life who are actually pro feminism? Not per se, but I know I have met some men that just by their behavior show that they believe in women and capabilities and such. Mm-hmm. I saw a website on a bumper sticker the other day that I wanted to look up that implied that, and it was on a man's truck. I forgot the – I didn't write it down, so I can't remember the URL. But there are groups you know that are that are saying hey look at us we are much more than um being a baseball champ or uh dirt under the fingernails crawling under the car kind of men we've got much more to us as well i mean both men and women have much more than just the macho uh appearances so that's cool mm-hmm. too yeah it's I very think, cool you, i think have you heard of any groups that are pro-feminism that are organized for men? 
Oh, yeah, there are several, actually, um, and uh, that are national, and uh, I'm on some of the listservs for them. And, uh, you know, they really, some of them um, really focus on men and manliness in the light of feminism. Um, some of them are more like uh, a cheerleading squad for feminists, you know, like, yes, we're with yes. You know, some mm-hmm. of them are actually saying, you know, um, how does this impact me? How can I behave more? You know, uh, how is this going to work? Open the world for me as a man. Um, so they have some different kind of emphases. But you know, at the same time, there's a huge presence out there of uh, men's rights organizations, uh, men's groups who feel that their um, rights as men have been eroded by the feminist movement and they're very prolific too these organizations um there's a a, an essay in this book called uh why are some men still afraid of feminism and i think Mm. that it's this is a pretty good one i'm going to read some of this i'm a strong believer that men gain a huge amount from feminism it's been a theme of my writing and public speaking for 30 years this is by michael kaufman But let's face it, you don't make omelets without cracking a few eggs. In this case, the eggs are the forms of power and privilege men have traditionally enjoyed. In the past, we men only had to compete with half of humanity for most jobs. Now we have to compete with all of humanity. At night, men got to relax, go out with friends, or pursue careers, sports, or hobbies, while our wives, even if they worked outside the home, did most of the child care and domestic work. Now we're expected to do our fair share. Some workplaces were straight out of locker rooms. Now, with sexist behavior challenged, for some men, work just isn't as much fun. No matter our personal abilities, society automatically valued us. Some religions said we were closer to God. We were automatically seen as stronger, more rational, and leaders. In relationships, we got cooked for, shopped for, cleaned up after, and emotionally stroked. We could, if we so chose, have power in getting sex. Now we can get put into jail for things that not long ago were seen as a man's rights. In some families and relationships, we were the ultimate decision-makers. Now we have to share power and decision-making. In other words, some men are afraid of feminism because it challenges forms of men's power and privilege that one half of our species foisted on the other half about 8,000 years ago. Giving up is hard to do. <laughs> and I think that that is, um, uh, you know, that pretty much explains it. You know, now you have yeah. to compete with everybody. Now you're expected to do these things. And I think for some men who were not fortunate enough to have good role models in their lives, this this is tough. They don't want to do that. They don't want to give up that privilege. They don't want to give up that power. And they don't really know how to. And they resent that somebody is expecting them to do that. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, do you agree with that? Men, though, I'm back with the media here again, but the power of media is evident. But if that person, that man who is begrudgingly moving forward, if they watch Mad Men, that TV show back in the 60s, I believe, or the 50s even, uh-huh. they'll see how far we've come. Either that or they'll sit there longingly wishing for it again, but... We've come a long way. <laughs> this is such a good deal. How do we let that go? <laughs> yeah. How do we uh, let it slip out of our hands? <laughs> it hasn't been too painful that we've uh, evolved since then. <clears throat> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I have actually never seen Mad Men, but I've heard um, good things about it. I, he- I heard that they smoke a lot in there, and I remember yes. the kids being all these smokers on TV, and I thought, oh, okay, I guess that is true to the period then. Um, right. But, yeah, but I think that uh, even having something like that that's kind of a throwback, it just points out the inequities, you know, that, that women lived with back then. And back mm-hmm. then, it was even considered, you know, woo, big headway, big headway here. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, one of my favorite secretaries. Yes, yes. Um, mm-hmm. I remember my uh, mother-in-law, who uh, died several years ago. She was she graduated from college during the Depression. She came from a rather privileged home, and uh, here she was, a woman, college graduate. You know, at that time. I mean, you would think that, wow, you know, the world would be at her door. But the only job she could find after she graduated was as a secretary. Mm-hmm. She had a college degree in home economics and child psychology. Mm. And she was a secretary for a podiatrist. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm sure that was fulfilling, you know. <laughs> right, for underemployment for sure. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, well, I just Louis, wanted to I call in. I wanted to call in and just let you know that I enjoy your show very, very much. I'm a loyal listener, and I appreciate all the the perspective you give to current topics. And I need to go oh. now, but I just thank you so much for your show. Well, thank you, Louise, and keep listening. We try to get better every week, and I sure appreciate you calling in this week. It's a lot better than me talking to myself. You contributed yeah. a lot. Thank you so much, Louise. Call in again. Bye-bye. Um, well, thank you. Thank you to Louise for calling in, and uh, it looks like we we uh, have a loyal listener, which is really uh, uh, nice of her to do. And um, I'm going to keep trying and keep seeing if we can get Rob to come back on the show or come on the show. I'm sure you'll find him much more interesting than hearing me just reading excerpts from this book. But I do recommend this book. If this is an area of interest to you, uh, men and uh, feminism, men and, and women's issues, I would definitely recommend getting a copy of Rob Oaken, O-K-U-N, uh, Voicemail, M-A-L-E, The Untold Story of the Pro-Feminist Men's Movement. And I also mentioned Jackson Katz, who is also a prolific author in this area. and He is the one who wrote The Macho Paradox. Again, just talking about some of the things we were just uh, reviewing in that one article that it, it is a paradox it is a paradox um, for men and uh, I think it's something that uh, men really have to work at they they who are interested and who want to be um, uh, equal and, and partners and and uh, have healthy masculinity as Rob calls it um, I think that they should um, read some of these things and I think that they're the women who are interested should read some of these things too so there's a lot of books out there on this topic. There are a lot of organizations out there on this topic. Um, and um, I think it's, it's wonderful that there's so much um, interest from so many uh, men's groups and, and from all across the spectrum. Again, this book, I think, is particularly um, uh, comprehensive. I mean, the, you know, I read to you the, the index, and it is just a very comprehensive book and uh, because it's not one single author it's essays collected written by a number of authors um, you get a number number of different perspectives 
I'd like to wrap up the show um, where, again, in Rob's book, there is an essay by uh, David Kuntz, K-U-N-D-T-Z, and it's called, I Don't Know What I'm Feeling, Teaching Men to Speak Emotionalese. And I think a lot of women are always criticizing men, saying they don't talk, they don't share their feelings, they don't do this, they don't do that. And um, in his article, at the end of his article, uh, comes lists three steps to emotional fitness. What do you actually do with feelings? How do you deal with them? What are the practical steps for a man to take? Our answer is the three steps to emotional fitness. They are, one, notice the feeling. Don't run, don't cover, say it, stay with it. Feelings often begin in the body. Two, name the feeling. Pick a name to identify what you feel. What exactly is it? Is it anger, sadness, fear, confusion, resentment? Try to discover what the feeling is about. And then three, express that feeling. Get the feeling outside of you. Go public with it, as appropriate, by talking with a friend, moving your body, writing in your journal, singing, yelling, smiling, um, to uh, get it out. And uh, so, again, his, his steps to emotional fitness are, you know, notice that you're having a feeling, pick a name, try to name that feeling and figure out what it's about, and then share that feeling with somebody else. And the quick version of the three steps to emotional fitness can be used anytime, when you're in the car, during a class break, at your computer, as you walk down the street, as you wait in line on your way home. Just remember, notice, name, and express. And I think with that, we're going to close the show. Again, book, uh, Rob Oaken, O-K-U-N, voicemail. There's also a, a periodical online and in print, I think, that's called voicemail. Uh, so you can go online and just uh, Google voicemail, M-A-L-E, and it'll put you through to the uh, article. I always check online to see the latest articles, and some of them are really fascinating. Um, even though they're uh, directed at men, I think they're just as fascinating for women. So I think that's going to close our our show for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you particularly to Louise for joining us and uh, making our show a little bit more interesting. So thank you for joining us, Three Women, Three Ways, and uh, we will be back next week, and we will talk to you about more women's and men's issues.